I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers in association with the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. In this special series with global leaders, writers, and campaigners, we'll be reflecting on more than a year of challenge and change as we ask the question, how has COVID changed us? My guest today is the journalist, broadcaster, and author, Marianne Seacar. Her new book is The Authority Gap, and it examines why women are taken less seriously than men and what we can do about it. Of systemic sexism, she says that the experience of having an authority and expertise underestimated or challenged is something that pretty much all women share. One part diagnosis of the challenge, one part prescription for the solution. The authority gap has been called a much needed manifesto. So to discuss why and how we can all campaign for change. Marianne, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you. Very pleased to be on. Well, listen, I've, I've read the book. I think it's a really important read. So why don't you frame the authority gap for us in terms of what listeners need to know about what they what they may well go on to read? Well, we all think that we've made great steps towards gender equality. And a lot of men think, actually, the problem is now over. And if anything, women are getting a better deal than men. But what we fail to realise is how much in our everyday interactions we still take women less seriously than men. We're still more reluctant to accord authority to women than to men. So you might think, for instance, we assume a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise. Whereas for a woman, it's just all too often the other way around. Mm. And this is something that women really notice in their lives almost every day. Men, of course, don't notice it because why should they? Mm. It's as if they are swimming in a river with the current and they look at the banks racing past them and they think, God, I'm such a good swimmer. And they see the women coming in the opposite direction, struggling to make headway against the current. And they think, well, they're just clearly not as good as we are. But well, we I, notice that we're struggling. When you read the book, it, it's packed full of amazing research, anecdotes, interviews, I, I think from, from all walks of life in terms of the lived experience. I, I, I just draw out one of the, the stats, you know, which, which are many, that female US Supreme Court justices are interrupted four times more often than male ones, not 96% of the time by men, as, as one illustration of just the points you make, that, that this is, looks pretty much to be an endemic situation, does it? it? It does. And actually, however authoritative and senior you are as a woman, you still come up against this. And I interviewed about 50 highly successful and authoritative women from Janet Yellen to Mary Beard, Mary McAleese, former president of Ireland, Julia Gillard. And they all have examples of their authority being questioned and challenged. Michelle Bachelet, for instance, twice president of Chile, said that she would have these meetings with her political colleagues. And at the end, she would sum up and say, right, so we're going to do A, B and C. And there was one of her male political colleagues who could never resist having the last word and coming in after her as if to show that he was summing up the meeting she was president yeah, yeah. and and you look at it from a number of different angles I mean I, I noted the quote from Jan Morris the author and trans woman that said even now men prefer women to be less informed less able less talkative and, and certainly le- less self-centered in terms of unpacking this a lot of this seemed to be about complete underestimation of women and you, you call, I think you call it mandamining is the okay. is the is the is the phrase that you used in in the book just explain some of the big the big sort of roadblocks the big issues that that you picked up on in in, in the book well the sort of behavior that the authority gap gives rise to which annoys women so much and doesn't just annoy them but holds them back in in their career and dents their confidence are things like as you say, underestimating a woman's ability in the first place, ignoring what she says at meetings. And I'm sure so many women have had the experience of making a suggestion or a point at a meeting 
and the men just carry on regardless. And then a man will make exactly the same point 10 minutes later and be fated for it. Mm. Uh, being interrupted, as you say, even Supreme Court justices, being talked over, being patronised. I mean, I, I tell the story of how I was at a conference and uh, all day conference, we'd all seen each other perform during the course of the day. And at the end of the day, I sat next to a man at dinner and he asked me what I did. And I was leading a portfolio life and didn't know which job he'd be most interested in. So I said, well, I write a political column for The Independent and I chair a think tank, sit on a couple of boards. I'm on the council of Tate Modern, do a bit of charity work. And he said, wow, you're a busy little girl. <laughs> I was older than the prime minister. <laughs> and when, and when you face that, that sort of clear prejudice, that kind of, you know, just, just really... You know, something that you, you assume has been sort of confined to the history books. How, how do you personally feel about that? Because, I mean, you, the thing that I felt about this was that it was this amazing combination of bringing up some hugely important issues, but also your writing style is so vibrant, Marianne, that actually, you know, you can read this and, and actually feel, when you, especially when you get to the end chapter and you're looking at some of the solutions. But before we get to that, when you look at living the lived experience and what it means to you personally, as a successful woman that has achieved, has achieved all the things that you've just spoken about, how, how does it feel? Well, I suppose it made me angry enough to write a book about it. <laughs> um, I mean, most of my life, I've actually been writing about politics, but this has always been sort of nagging at me at the back of my mind. And in fact, I helped to set up an organisation called Women in Journalism uh, more than 20 years ago now, because I felt that women working in journalism and women as subjects of journalism were getting such a, a raw deal. Mm. So it is something that I've always felt quite annoyed about. I mean, actually, to be fair, I probably suffer from this sort of behaviour a lot less than a lot of other women because I've been accorded public authority by being, you know, for nearly 20 years, I was a columnist in the Times. And so that does, to a certain extent, insulate you against this mm. unless people know who you are. But I've, you know, witnessed it so much in my life in public, seeing, seeing women just being, as you say, man-to-mind or man-to-estimated. But I noticed that you also said that in the book that, that, that once once women break through and they're at a certain level, this this can be a very different experience. But in terms of what, what I took out of it, I, I kind of noted down about sort of four areas that I thought were really central to it. One being this issue that confidence is not the same as competence, you know, the confidence trick. Secondly, being the, you know, the assumed divine right to talk, you know, the hog hogging the floor. The third area being this kind of voices in the void, refusal to take women seriously, but also critically that that, that women do it too, as well as men in terms of underestimating other women. Is that a fair summary, do you think, of, of, of the kind of the, the main part of the book in terms of the areas that you examine? Yes. I mean, let me talk about them each in turn. Confidence not being the same as competence. <laughs> this is a classic mistake that we all make you know a man generally a man you know will talk extremely confidently he will promote his abilities and we will just believe him now you might well say in that case quite logically well come on women you know step up just show as much confidence as men do lean in as Sheryl Sandberg said and you'll be fine so basically it's all women's fault and we should just go on assertiveness training courses and we'll all be fine sadly I mean I wish it were that simple because it sadly isn't and the reason is 
that there is this real double bind for women. So if women aren't confident and assertive enough, nobody takes them seriously, fair enough. If they are as confident and assertive as men, people recoil and they feel very uncomfortable and they dislike a woman like that. And they will call her words like abrasive or strident or pushy or Mm. bossy or bitchy or ball breaking even. And these are words that are never used of men. So why is this? Well, It's because we have these sneaky little old-fashioned stereotypes in our brains that tell us that women ought to be kind and nurturing and never self-promoting and uncompetitive, that what social psychologists call communal character traits, whereas men are supposed to be confident and assertive and showing leadership and dominant, which social psychologists call agentic traits. Now, if a woman wants to be taken seriously or wants to do well in her career, she has to have those agentic traits, being confident and assertive and showing leadership. But that makes us uncomfortable because we feel she's being too masculine. Mm. And therefore, she is caught in this terrible double bind. Not confident enough, she's not taken seriously. Too confident, apparently. And she is disliked. And the trouble is that when people, men in particular, when they're doing making hiring or promoting decisions, they are unlikely to hire or promote a woman they don't like. So likability becomes a very important important factor in hiring and promotion, which it isn't for hiring and promoting men. So men tend to be hired or promoted on competence and potential, women on likability. So we have this terrible double bind. Now it's the same with hogging the floors, as you mentioned, with, with talking time. So if you look in almost every public arena, you will find that women on the whole talk for less time than men do. And this is not the case at home, but it is in public. And there is exactly the same double bind, because if women don't talk enough, they're not listened to and they're not taken seriously. But women are perceived as talking too much when they merely talk for the same amount of time as a man. And women who are perceived as talking too much are thought of as less competent. So again, women need the the sort of agility of an Olympic gymnast on a balance beam to get these things right. Whereas men can just saunter along the floor. Now, uh, what was the... Well, and, and also the Queen Bee Syndrome that you, you raise in the book in terms... Okay, so, so women being uh, biased against women too. And this is certainly the case that we all grow up with the same stereotypes in our head. So we see men basically in charge in society. And quite often we see our fathers earning more than our mothers, working harder than our mothers. And so we just automatically associate male with authority. And therefore we have both women and men sometimes times have the same uncomfortable reaction trying to associate female with authority Mm. Uh, now it's not as strong in women as it is in men but nonetheless a lot of the a lot of the research studies that i cite show women being as biased against women as men are now this is not just a book about career ladders and, and the journey to the top. This is also about every woman's life, every woman's experience. And one of, one of the sort of, I felt moving and powerful parts of the book was when you talked about prejudice and bias, especially as it pertains to racial bias. And you talked about this this idea of the, the busy intersection of prejudice. I thought it was such a powerful phrase. In terms of this particular part of the puzzle, in terms of the everyday lives of people, not just the very successful president presidents and CEOs, interesting as their lives are, but in terms of general society, introduce that part of of the book to us. Well, what I found is that the problems associated with the authority gap are even greater if you are not white, if you are disabled, if you are working class, 
And sometimes, but not always, if you're non-straight, if you're if you're lesbian or bisexual, uh, it's slightly more complicated there. And so, yes, the, the problems get compounded. And so if it's hard enough being a white middle class woman, it's a hell of a lot worse being a black working class woman. Mm. I mean, I, just examples that I can give you, for instance, Bernadine Evaristo, who, of course, is the fabulous Booker Prize winning novelist, also a professor of creative writing, took a student out to lunch, a young white woman who was perhaps in her 20s. Bernadine was then in her mid 50s and the waitress asked the young white woman for the order and gave her the bill <laughs> mm, yeah it, it's just little things like that that great on on, on people's lives every day but, but I also thought I mean although you know it's, it's not a major part of of the book you you do point towards some of the more extreme problems associated with this say whether that's domestic violence you quoted margaret atwood who who wrote men are afraid that women will laugh at them women are afraid that men will kill them i mean that there is a very difficult part to this story isn't there there really is and you know i i i write a whole chapter on the backlash against female authority and you know, of course, we all know that, you know, female politicians get much more abuse and more violent threats than male politicians do. But it's not just women in public life. I mean, you know, women in public life will often get rape threats and death threats on social media merely for expressing an opinion. But it's even girls putting up YouTube videos on how to braid their hair and they'll get a mm. rape threat in the comments section. And so I asked quite a lot of psychotherapists, male psychotherapists, because I thought they would have an even better insight into this. What's this all about? And they say it's about, a, and it's a very small, you know, it's only a small number of men who do it, but gosh, are they scary. And it's men who have a very insecure masculinity. And it may be that either they were incredibly cosseted by their mothers and sisters when they were children, and therefore resent the fact that this is not happening to them in adulthood, or perhaps they feel they weren't cosseted enough and their egos are very fragile. And they see basically any woman asserting an opinion as a threat to their masculinity. Do you think technology, trolling, social media, do you think this is, has emboldened and accelerated the problem and the challenge? I mean, is there any, are there any signals it's getting better, do you think? No, no, I think it's getting worse, if anything. Right. And, and I really feel the social media companies are not getting a grip of it. And I think the fact that you are able to be anonymous on social media channels makes this much, much worse. I think if you had to verify your identity before you had a Twitter account, you would not make rape or death threats because you would be much easier to track down. Mm. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I think they have a big responsibility, the social media companies, to get a grip of this. Now, we are addressing a question throughout all of these interviews, which is how has COVID changed us? From reading the book, a number of those interviews would have been conducted prior to COVID. In terms of what's happened next, in terms of where we are and how the authority gap has changed during the experience of, of a global pandemic. Tell us a little bit about the effects. Okay, well, in some ways we've gone backwards and in some ways we've gone forwards. So I'll start with a positive. Female leaders have been bloody brilliant during COVID. <laughs> I mean, it really has been dramatic how much more successful, on average, female leaders have been than male leaders, and particularly a certain type of male leader. So it's been the bombastic, populist, you know, Jair Bolsonaro, 
Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, you know, it's those leaders who have done incredibly badly because they have strutted about the stage saying, oh, it's not going to be a problem here. Oh, it's just like flu. I've been shaking hands of COVID patients and, and, you know, what's the point of having a vaccine? Whereas women have just quietly got on with locking down quickly, putting the health of their citizenry first. And, you know, if you look at countries, well, obviously people like Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand or Angela Merkel in Germany have on the whole done much better than the men. So that has been a good thing. And I think that has proved that women actually do make very good leaders on average, not every woman, of course. So, so, I mean, you mentioned Boris Johnson. I mean, when when he said to the G7 that that we needed to create a more feminine world, do do you think he was thinking about the New Zealand German Finnish, Denmark experience in terms of those female leaders? Or do you think it was just a just a good soundbite he was after? Well, I laughed quite hollowly. <laughs> but if he's right, hooray. You know, I mean, if he really means it, hooray. This is a man who has three men in his cabinet for every woman. Um, so that's not a great start in a representative democracy. Um, but if he means it, that that is terrific. Because the other good thing, and it may be that this is what he was referring to, is that the pandemic has shown that for people who can work from home, and of course, that's not everybody, flexible working can be an absolute godsend. And this is another good thing that I think has come out of this, at least potentially good thing. Mm. That it, you know, I, I remember trying to persuade the Times when I was working there 30 years ago that there was no reason why parents should have to be in the office every day, that they could write their pieces just as well from home. And I presented this, pol- I, I wrote up a policy on this, gave it to the managing editor, he put it in the bin. What uh, heresy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The pandemic has showed that actually we can be just as productive, if not sometimes more so, working from home or at least working flexibly. And this can be very helpful to parents. And when I say, and I say parents deliberately, because it shouldn't just be mothers. But the danger is, that if men start going back to the office and women carry on working from home, again, they're going to be overlooked for promotion because Mm. they're not nearly as visible. Just before we come off the kind of world leaders onto the kind of the the day-to-day working experience, you do argue in the book that female leaders would handle things like climate change differently, that there would be a particular style of leadership that that might well be missing around the world. I'm just thinking about, not that I want to bring it back to you know, sort of the G7 again, or maybe I do, but in terms of what might be different if we did see more female leaders in that kind of environment, what what, what would we be doing differently, do you think? Well, women on average care about climate change more than men do. And parliaments that have a higher proportion of female MPs tend to do more about climate change. And if you look at sort of local studies where local people have been given the chance to make policies about, say, deforestation, you find that when women are given more decision-making power, they tend to take decisions that are better for the planet. So Mm. all these suggest that having more women in politics would help us do more about climate change. Now, on the issue of the workplace, now, Obviously, you've mentioned working from home as being one of the big changes, which which may well have quite quite significant implications. But you also wrote in a recent piece that you felt that the impact of COVID was that it brought a concern that there was an inclination to favour men that was being re- reinforced by the pandemic, a kind of back to the 1950s type argument. T- tell us more. Well, that was going to be the bad side, the downside of the pandemic. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the downside. Yeah. Yes, which is that, I mean, women have always done more unpaid work than men, That's, which is mainly work in the home, looking after children, cooking, cleaning, <clears throat> all the household chores, looking after elderly relatives. So on average, they do 60% more unpaid work than men. So 
not only are they paid less for the paid work they do, but they do more of the unpaid work, which means that the real gender pay gap is actually much bigger than we think. But when the pandemic hit and you had couples in which both members were working from home, women took on the vast majority of the extra work, the homeschooling, the extra childcare. And actually, you know, it, it stretched them almost to breaking point, particularly mothers. I think, you know, if, if, if women didn't have children, it wasn't nearly so bad. So I was okay because mine had already left home. But I was really disappointed that on average, men didn't step up more to help. What, what do you think the pandemic has has taught you personally, Marianne? I mean, how is, how, I, mean I, I interview a lot of people on this show and, and I rarely get a muted response to a question like this. It's, people either feel quite sort of positive or quite negatively disposed to having lived through the pandemic, not, not in terms of the, the immediate sort of surroundings, but in terms, in terms of how it makes them feel about the future, whether there's a future that's emboldened by vaccine breakthroughs or actually where's one where people feel depressed about our inability to come together. I mean, where, where do you sit on that sort of, you know, on that sort of lived experience, I guess, in terms of your own, your own sort of journey through, through COVID? Personally, I was very, very lucky and, and I was aware of this that I was old enough for my children to have left home. So I wasn't trying to homeschool them while working at the same time. And equally, my mother, aged 91, had died just a year before the pandemic. And she lived several hours away from me and I wouldn't have been able to see her and she would have absolutely hated it. So just personally, I was in a much better position than most people. And I also had a garden. (laughs) <laughs> so, so that, okay, so that well, that's the that I suppose that's the personal piece. But in terms of your outlook, how you feel about the world, how you feel about living in for the future, mm. d- does it make you more positive about it, or does it make you more pessimistic? I think it makes me more positive that governments are going to have to think properly about real risks. And I know, you know, I sit on lots of boards and we have these risk maps, you know, what would we do in the case of a terrorist bomb? What would we do? And, you know, you do your risk map, but actually you don't really think about it very much. And I think what this has done has, will have made politicians think much harder about things like stop antibiotics losing their potency or Mm. how are we going to combat climate change? Because these things actually are proper risks that will one day at least come back and hit us. So I think I'm reasonably optimistic about that. There was certainly a feeling, I think, in the first half of the pandemic of enormous gratitude to the NHS. And it was a sort of feeling that I thought if we could only bottle this and keep this, that may make a big, di- big difference to the priorities we have after the pandemic in terms of paying the sort of people who've saved our lives better, paying people who work in social care better, that sort of thing. I fear it probably won't last. I felt the same after the 2012 London Olympics, where everybody was just walking around with this fabulous altruistic grin on their face. (laughs) But a year later, we'd all forgotten what it felt like. Well, I I think that's a nice segue into chapter 15 of your book, which is this, you know, frankly, effervescent chapter of solutions and things that we can all do to make the change possible. And a couple of the kind of highlights from that are the opportunity to bring up a new generation to think um, and behave differently, the issue of the potential for unconscious bias to decrease over time. I I think there are solutions that feel very actionable in the book. And and I I guess they sort of also frame your positive take on the fact that change is possible. Absolutely. I mean, I really want to I really do want to change the world through individual actions. And I think each of us just can take small steps 
to make women feel more equal and be equally respected to men. And they're mm. only little things, but we, if we learn to do them, we really can change the world for women and for men, actually, because one of the points I make in this book is that men in more gender equal relationships and in more gender equal societies are dramatically happier, healthier, more satisfied with their life, have better relationships both with their partners and with their children. They sleep better. And I think this is a real clincher. They get more frequent and better sex. (laughs) 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 This is not a zero sum game, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, I I felt that, you know, to that point, that this is about men and women. And there's a lovely quote that you used from former Irish president, Mary McAleese, about a world that flies on one wing. I mean, that that summed up the case for change, if if you will. Tell us a little bit about that quote. Yes, I mean, I I, I think I'll, I'll read it out to you actually because I'll only remember it wrong otherwise if men don't take women equally seriously we end up with this world that flies on one wing and I don't know if you've ever seen a bird that tries to fly on one wing it can't get elevation it can't get direction flaps about rather sadly and that's our world flapping about rather sadly because of the refusal to use the elevation and the direction and the confidence that comes from flying on two wings and the sad Mm. thing is that very often this male wing seems to think it has to spend a lot of effort keeping the other wing down. And that's wasted effort. It's wasted lives. It's caused dysfunction in relationships. It's caused dysfunction in families, in communities, in workplaces, in politics, in international politics, in warfare. That's where we have to understand that when women flourish and their talents and their creativity flourish, then the world flourishes and men flourish. We all Mm. flourish. It's a beautiful piece of praise. And I suppose it, it, it also speaks to the message of the book, but also your style of making your case and persuading, changing minds. Bill Deeds, the legendary former editor of The Telegraph, wrote about you that let loose on the leader page, Marianne wove a sometimes startling liberal thread through the Daily Telegraph's blue tapestry, is that actually... You seem to be very, very skilled in the art of persuasion. Do you think that's a fair fair sort of summary? Well, that's very kind of Bill. But I have spent almost all my life as either a leader writer or a columnist. So in other words, presenting an opinion and trying to persuade people of its merits. And also, I am the daughter of a barrister. So I suppose I was trained from an early age, yes. Mm. Your best tip for life, we're, we're sort of almost out of time. So I suppose this is my, my last question, is that one thing leads to another. And I thought that it was a really interesting idea in terms of how the journey of life meanders, how things happen. Explain it to listeners. And, and, and I guess a final thought in terms of the message that you'd leave with us. I always say this to my daughters, go for it because one thing leads to another. And what I mean is meet as many people as you can and put yourself forward. I mean, in a nice way, but put yourself forward and get out there because you will meet one person who will introduce you to another who then may help you or they will say, oh, I've got a really interesting idea for you. Why don't you read this book? Or, you know, and one thing leads to another. And so many things in my life have happened because of that because of Mm. someone I've met and have bonded with and maybe have become friends with, maybe have ended up becoming colleagues with, they've hired me, I've hired them, or they've introduced me to somebody else. And you just have to have the confidence to go to events that might intimidate you a little, start a conversation with someone you've never met before, because one thing might lead to another. What a wonderful place to leave it. Marianne Seagart, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you, it's been fun. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. 
Your Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? Just be